If you're tired of arguing with strangers on the internet, try talking with one of them in real life. Welcome to Back in America, the podcast. Welcome to Back in America, a podcast where I explore the Americans' identity, culture, and values. In this episode, I look at the experience of an American of Chinese origin and how the current pandemic has impacted her life. My guest is a former mayor from Montgomery, New Jersey. She grew up in a Chinese prison camp and was a student in Beijing during the Tiananmen Square protests. President Trump is trying very hard to blame his failure to contain the COVID-19 pandemic on the Chinese. In turn, anti-Asian racist action had raised to about 100 reported cases per day in February, according to Congresswoman Judy Chu. COVID, COVID, to be specific, COVID-19. That name gets further and further away from China as opposed to calling it the Chinese virus. By the way, it's a disease without question, has more names than any disease in history. I can name Kung Flu. I can name... 19 different versions of names. Hi, Cecilia. Welcome to Back in America. Hello. Thank you for having me. So, Cecilia, back in March, you were instrumental in launching several fundraising to help first responders here in Princeton uh, in their effort to fight against the COVID pandemic. I wonder if you could tell us what motivated you to run these campaigns? Well, first of all, it actually wasn't me. It was um, the entire Chinese community led by a group of, uh, we call it the, the organizing uh, committee, um, which is a group of t uh, 10 people or so. Um, this happened probably around February or so uh, when coronavirus first hit China in late December and early January. Uh, many of the Chinese residents in um, Princeton and frankly in, in all over the world experienced that remotely and uh, many many of them participated in fundraising donations um, to back home to their relatives to their colleges and so on and so forth nobody expected coronavirus hit america in so heavily and so abruptly and nobody certainly expected that our government responded it um, in such a slow fashion so as it gradually um, moved inland towards us and princeton unfortunately is one of the first places that had um, uh, coronavirus um, in new jersey um, people got really worried and as the government was formulating 
formulating its ideas. Gradually, the next piece of news we heard was we didn't have enough PPEs. And so as you can imagine, as someone who just went through this experience remotely and now seeing it happening in our own community, people got really anxious and people wanted to do something. And so that's when these 10 people jumped in and got the community organized and quickly came up with a plan and executed it. PPE? Personal protective equipment, which is which includes uh, goggles, uh, masks. There are different kinds of masks, and this is something I've learned along the way as well. I never imagined that there could be so much specifications, different classifications and certifications and approvals that could go into masks, medical gowns, uh, face shields, um, anything that you can imagine that protect protect our first responders. That includes policemen, EMS, and of course our doctors and nurses and Um, everybody in the hospitals. So would you say that because the virus originated uh, first in China, Chinese community was particularly concerned about this pandemic? Absolutely. And also, don't forget, this is also at least, you know, I haven't I've been in this country for 30 years. I don't have a, a, a strong connection with China anymore. But many residents in Princeton still have that strong connection. And many of them actually um, witnessed the SARS um, some years ago. So this is not only second time around by the time it hit America, it's third time around. So in a way, they are they know what kind of speed to expect for a government to handle this kind of thing to keep it to keep it under mm. control and we were not doing that at the time and how much did you raise altogether Uh, the total value exceeded about $62,000. Uh, we actually initially set the fundraising goal. There were two parts. Uh, we raised money. We also collected donations because we identified the needs in the community. It's not just uh, uh, personal protective gears for first responders, but also the most vulnerable segment of our community, which is um, especially the kids on free and reduced lunch programs in our schools. Um, so we collected uh, food. We collected daily essentials. We also collected money. Uh, the fundraising goal was initially set at $10,000, and we reached that goal overnight. Um, so we quickly, you know, added to that. Eventually, we raided, we raised over $26,000 in cash in total, and then the rest of it are all donations of PPEs and, and food and daily essentials. Wow. So you saw, uh, uh, you saw the entire... Asian or should I say Chinese community uh, come together uh, in order to help the local community fight uh, the coronavirus. And, and yet, uh, President Trump calling it the Chinese virus. Um, how do you think that made you and uh, other Asian people feel? So, <laughs> it's so infuriating and frustrating um, in so many ways. Um, I think that um, just the fact that we have to explain to, um, you know, the, the leader of this country why it's so wrong to identify a virus based on its location and specifically link link it to a, to, to a certain ethnic group and almost with the so intention to insult someone. Um, You know, I've reached the point where I'm so angry and mad. I don't even, I don't have words for it. Really, I don't. And what do you make of uh, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo accusing China of putting the world at risk because of his lack of transparency? 
it's another lesson learned for all of us that you, these kind of bias and prejudice and racism comes from the same place, which is ignorance. And for someone who deliberately to use the power of words, to use their positions, um, to you know practice this kind of racist views and you know filled with uh, bias and and hatred and even. Um, that is just wrong. They don't deserve the office that they hold. It's an insult to all the citizens, not just the Chinese. It's an insult to the office as well. So let's um, come back to you, Cecilia Burge. You are Princeton High School head coach. You're also a member of the speech and debate team. That's quite a stretch from your career on Wall Street, where you were a bond analyst. <laughs> I guess so. Um, I, you know, I grew up in a uh, academics family, um, and I think that my I have lots of uh, physicists and mathematicians in in my house. Um, however, they were also um, mathematicians and physicists who were very devoted to community affairs. Uh, my grandfather was uh, the president of Peking University. Um, he led the um, effort against the Three Gorges Dam. Um, this was back in the 80s. Um, and I was still in China at the time as a teenager. And, uh, uh, um, I witnessed what he did back then against the communists. Um, can, can you power. tell us a bit more about this, uh, this effort and what it was? Sure. So um, the Three Gorges Dam is, uh, I believe it's still the largest dam in the world. Um, you know, as many people know, the Yangtze River, you know, carries a lot of heritage. And it's a lot of people identify that with with China. Um, it's the um, second longest river in the world, um, has lots and lots of um, uh, cultural heritage along the way. It starts in Tibet. It, It um, ends in Shanghai, so it cuts through China literally halfway through. And this was in the 80s under Deng Xiaoping's leadership. Um, the government decided to build um, Three Gorges Dam. This partly was to fulfill the need for uh, hydroelectricity in China because the country was beginning to develop and needed that power. But more importantly, it was more for building a legacy for Deng Xiaoping because um, it's located in the province where he came from. Uh, my grandfather, being a scientist throughout his entire life, believed that these things, um, decisions as, as such, should be made, should be made based Based on science rather than political convenience. So he led an, a team of scientists, uh, journalists, local politicians, citizens, and initiated a, a opposition effort. It went all the way up to I don't know the English translation of it. I think it's called People's Political Consulting Firm. It's almost like it's like in the U.S. we have the Senate and the Congress. This is the equivalent of the Congress. The Three Gorges Dam vote received 30, more than 30 percent of no votes, which is the highest no votes in the entire country. It humiliated the Communist Party at the time. Um, so that's the history of it. And um, now it's been built and it has created a lot of environmental military, uh, you know, other issues, as you can imagine. Mm. 
So you come, you have a, you have a history of uh, activism. I guess few people knowing you either as a bond analyst or as a teacher know that you grew up in a labor camp in China. Can you take us back to that time? If I were to ask you to close your eyes and tell us what you see and what you feel from your early memories, what would it be? To begin with, I always said that I have a happy childhood. Um, it's not as uh, dark as most people assume. Um, so, but I was born in the dark ages of the modern Chinese history. I was born at the end of the Cultural Revolution when uh, my mother was, um, who grew up in America, actually spent her teenage years here with my grandparents in California. I was born right um, when she was about to finish um, what do you call it? It's not a term in the labor camp, but basically all these intellectuals were sent down to the labor camps to be re-educated because Chairman Mao thought that they were uh, too worthy. Uh, they only use, they only know how to use their words. They don't know how to use a tool mm. in the countryside. So let's send millions of these uh, intellectuals go down to get re-educated so that they can appreciate what we peasants went through before we took over the country. And then they would appreciate what we have been done for the new country. So that was an oversimplified version of the Cultural Revolution. And so I was right born around then. And as soon as I was born, she was sent back um, uh, down to the, to the countryside. I was left at home. At the time, my grandfather was hiding from the Red Guards um, in Peking University, where he was working as a chancellor. So my grandfather Pa raised me a little bit. My father was probably the equivalent um, thing in today's, in this country is house arrest. He was considered a quote unquote counter-revolutionary um, intellectual. Um, my, my father was also educated here, went to University of Michigan uh, Medical School. And um, he actually was the one who introduced Western anesthesiology to China. But because of these affiliations, he wasn't a allowed in the operating room in China for almost 10 years. And so every day he was supposed to be home uh, late at night. Um, he, he would start the day very early, go to the hospital, have to do a loyalty dance in front of Mao's po uh, portrait. And then he would spend the whole day to reform himself by cleaning all the bathrooms. Um, so he was the janitor in the hospital for that many years. And then at the, in the evening, he was supposed to still in the hospital writing his confessions, reflections of what he has learned from the mouse works, the little red books that he read again, again, again. And then he was he was allowed to come home um, late at night, um, nine o'clock, 10 o'clock or so. And the next day would, would begin. In the meantime, the place where I was born in, it was a traditional um, Beijing style Uh, bungalow, but um, you know, back then it was the affluent families uh, had those uh, those homes. The Chinese idea was to have four generations living under one roof. All the rooms were taken by the proletariats. So um, we, my family, was um, left in a, a 12 square meters small room with you know, no toilet, no nothing. Um, so, so that was the environment I grew up. But of course. I remember some of this. My memories are, um, there were very 
many happy memories of playing, you know, with stones and sands, whatever I could find on the street. Um, there were also uh, stories being told about me uh Spitting, you know, the, the, the courtyard eventually once was taken by this many uh, proletariats, the, the, in, the, the courtyard became a um, sort of open air kitchen, so to speak. So people made food there and then they were brought in into the rooms and then ate with their families. So there was this granny who was supposed to be very re revolutionary. She always spied on my family. She always reported to the hospital where my dad worked about what we were doing if we had visitors at all. We really didn't have many visitors. So apparently I was told to what, when I was four, one day I uh, disliked that granny so much that I got into her pot. She was cooking and I spit into her pot, which obviously created, um, invited political problems for my dad. Um, then he ended up doing more loyalty dances, oh more, more confessions. <laughs> when things got worse in the city, at the age of four and the age of six, um, my mom took me. I went to the labor camp with, with my mom. Again, for kids, that was a happy time. I got to play in the mountains. I do have memories of us living in a shed in the middle of the field. Um, and the scary part was um, the, the, our job was to make sure that the uh, the the crops that was um planted was not taken away by birds or other animals. Um, so that was my mother's job. But at night, we didn't have any electricity. We didn't have any running water. And in the meantime, it was so dark and the mountain is right there and you hear these wolves, you know, hollering. And then the next morning, you would hear reports from um you know, we call them peasants, I guess, today is farmers. Um, they The farmers lived in the commune, and that's where um, it's more concentrated. We lived in the field. Um, so they would report how many chicken were taken by the wolves, how many rabbits were eaten by the fox, and so on and so forth. So, um, you know, as a little, little kid, four years old or five years old, I was actually, that was when I felt like, oh, are the wolves going to take me? What am I going to do when they come and attack me? So, yeah, that's... Wow. <laughs> Some kind of memories <laughs> you've got. A different world. <laughs> and then you uh, studied in Beijing. And in uh, 1989, you participated to the Tiananmen Square protest. What? How were those days? In the 80s, the economy began to grow, and it was growing very unevenly. And actually, Deng Xiaoping, the leader at the time, announced that um, it was okay for some people to be rich first, which was very different compared to the socialist ideology that the country had been holding on to. Um, but unfortunately, um, certain people meant those with access uh, to higher power. So there's the creation or the um, labeling of the clubs, um, which is um, and to some extent by then my family got rehabilitated and we're part of that club in many ways. Children whose parents are in power have access to 
everything. You know, if the country is developing, it needs concrete. So uh, we could probably with somebody's letter, and then all of a sudden, everybody else got a no from certain manager. But because we had the letter from someone from higher up, that manager is going to sign up on that. So, you know, all of these privileges that came along. So it was very unfair. And it was also a time when um, uh, American school of thoughts began to get into China. So the concept of equal opportunity become more and more became more and more prominent. And it was at that time Hu Yaoban, who was a strong advocate to for China to shift uh, westwards, uh, get closer to um, um, America and Western European countries, uh, which is very a very different mentality and philosophy from the traditional approach of being allies with Soviet Union and and other countries. Um, so he died suddenly, and because the students in particular viewed him as a champion of free speech, of equal opportunity, and because Deng Xiaoping's suppression over Hu Yaobang, because he got shoved away uh, later in his political career, um, the students made a request in Tiananmen Square, which is the, you know, it's the center of Beijing, right in front of the Forbidden City. And the government ignored the student again and again. And it just got escalated to the point, I think it was April 20. Uh, 6, um, 1989, People's Daily, which is the official government newspaper, had an editorial and called the students' march and student protest a terrorist attack. And that's when things erupted. It paralyzed Beijing. There was no school anymore. All of um, us college kids um, were on, on Tiananmen Square. We occupied the, the square with tents. Hunger strike was going on. We demanded a conversation with the government. Um, so eventually the government did um, come out. It took them a long while uh, to come out and to engage in a dialogue with the student. Um, so here again, my grandfather, by then he retired, um, but um, as, as a recognizable voice, probably one of the most recognizable academic voice, he got 10 college presidents together as a consortium and, and wrote a letter, a joint letter, and submitted to the central government um, asking the government to come out and speak to the students and hear their voices. Like I said, they did eventually uh, meet. It wasn't a productive meeting. The hunger strike ended soon after that. So arguably, if managed properly, it would have just died down, right? Things we actually, a lot of students were prepared to return to school, expecting school to reopen the following September. But all of a sudden in early June, um, you know, uniformed military trucks and whatnot descended upon Beijing, occupied the major arteries and sort of cornered um, the students in, in Tiananmen Square. And, you know, we all got the news and um, some people, I wasn't on the square that evening, but I was there the previous nights and whatnot. And, um, and before you know it, um, you hear bullets. Um, that night I was at home. I did not know, never in my life did I imagine that uh, guns would be pointed at students. But, um, you know, I heard nonstop bullets. I actually thought 
you know, who is getting married now and who is getting getting married late at night that the fireworks is nonstop? How much fireworks did they did they buy? It wasn't until the next morning when I got onto the street did I see students with blood, you know, on their shirts, on their faces and, come, you know, with eyes um you know, crying, um, bawling, um, with eyes being red, um, it was it was a disaster. So, my first instinct was to protect my family. I was living with my grandparents at the time. They were, you know, either these are people had who had gone through wars. So I remember we we used every single container we could find in the house. Um, uh, bathtubs, um, you know, different trays and whatnot, we filled it with water because we were afraid that water was going to cut off. Uh, the next thing was I rushed to the to the market. We just got everything we could get our hands on, especially canned food to prepare for who knows what to come. It was three, four days of a city, uh, one of the largest cities in the world, with no government. Every now and then there will be a truck of soldiers uh, driving by, and some just drove by quickly with nothing. Others, um, you know, you would hear bullets. As soon as you hear bullets, everybody is on the ground. So it went on like that for three, four days um, before finally the government came out and pronounced it a terrorist uh, attack. Um, so so the government had to come come out and um, put down. Um, in the meantime, um, and the part of, uh, with Tamar Square was all sealed. Um, no people are allowed to enter. But um, gradually, people were going on their bicycles around town in Beijing, trying to have a peek into what's happening in there. And you see burnt uh, trucks, burnt tires. Uh, you see, you know, bloody clothes left somewhere. Um, so there are some pretty gruesome scenes um, around then. And up till today, nobody knows um, how many people died on the square. Uh, nobody knows uh, who's responsible for it, although, in, or I should say, everybody knows who should be responsible for it. And if you go to China today, the topic is um, heavily censored. Nobody talks about it. And that concerns me more than anything else, honestly. And um, it's going to be one of these things not going down in Chinese history well. I don't know how, whether it's by force or by will, if a country of its people, especially if it's forced, um, as is the case, not to remember its history, um, I can't imagine the impact it will, it will bring upon humanity. You mentioned it uh, early on when you started talking about Tiananmen Square and, and throughout you know, your memories, I could not avoid but think of the current protest with Black Lives Matter, especially when you said, you know, a country not remembering his past and his history. The protest might not have much in common, but what do you make of the current protest in the, in the U.S.? I support it. You know, the current one is much, much more complex. And the Chinese immigrants community is divided. There is a group of um, people like myself who strongly support it. Um, and I think that, you know, I take myself, for example, it's been a process. The racial 
discrimination in this country has so much history and is so complex. And it's, it's um, and especially it's not just black and white as it was the case in the Civil War. It wasn't even black and white as the case as the civil rights movement anymore. Um, it's much more embedded into our culture. And to some extent, it's so much uh, accepted, right? It was, I accepted the fact that a black person living right next to me is stopped more frequently by cops. Did I know about the fact? Yes. Did it shock me as it does today? No, it didn't. So I think it's been a process for all of us. For someone like me who's been here for 30 years, I've got a lot more opportunities to hear how black folks um, go through life. Anything from being killed like George Floyd did because of a $20 counterfeit or because of nothing. So regardless what it is, it comes from the same place. Again, it's about um, ignorance. So so I absolutely support it. I hope that as a country, um, this reminds us how important it is to talk about some very uncomfortable topics. Um, I think part of the reason we got to where we are today in large part is, and to some extent, is the Anglo-Saxon culture of sweeping the discomfort under the carpet and let's not talk about it so that we can have, you know, a perfect image in front of everybody. But if we want to be um, perfect, if we want to strive for that perfect union, we have to face the reality. And the reality in many, many ways is black and white. As a nation American, I think we straddle the two, wor two worlds. We get some of the benefits from especially the civil rights movement. We get some of the privileges from the white uh, community. But every now and then, like the case we talked about earlier about the uh, Trump calling a China virus, like especially bamboo ceiling and all of these examples are the same kind of um, uh, you know, we suffer from the same kind of decisions made by people who are ignorant about our culture and about ourselves. So tell me, in uh, 2007, you became the first and only Asian American woman mayor in uh, New Jersey. You were the mayor of uh, Montgomery, right? Mm -hmm. uh, what can you tell me about the daily and lifelong experiences of racism and discrimination against Asian American at, for you personally? You know, where are you impacted by that in your life, in your experience? You know, uh, like many immigrants, when I first came to America, um, all I thought about was I'm just going to work hard. Racism doesn't bother me. I will just hunker down, work hard and work harder and I will make it. Um, you know, I did that. I did work hard. I did work harder and I uh, did, quote unquote, make make it right. Um, however, through that process, um, I've also um, I've been very lucky that I haven't experienced the extreme kind of racism. But through that process, I definitely became a lot more aware and certainly recognized the racist incidents that happened to me with or without me recognizing it then. Um, when I was mayor in Montgomery, um, there were people who would come to the township committees and monopolize the public comment, you know, time frame just to complain. And they are just there. They just want their own platform. And when I try to impose certain rules um, just to keep the meeting in order, I was called a communist. 
right? And be- before I became mayor, I was deputy mayor. And it just happened so that uh, the mayor at the time, who is my mentor and, and good friend, is also female. So the comment from uh, the fellow male counterpart on the township committee is, now you girls can do whatever you want. Wow. So, right. So there is, um, you know, there is, that's the thing. If we allow those kind of discrimination, whether it's based on race or sex or ethnicity, whatever it is, um, you know, there's no end to this war. Um, so some people complain, why do we have to be political correct all the time? It's not that we're political. We try to be political correct all the time. It's because words have power. Um, and as the the coach of, of our debate team at Princeton High School, I see that every day. I hear that from my kids every day. Um, they They carry weight. They carry power. They can help us love. And they can help us hate. And we all hope that that it helps us love. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Finally, Cecilia, I would like you to tell me what is America to you? Home. <laughs> America is home. The reason actually I came to America, um, I think now that I know what America is like, obviously, I'm more American than Chinese in many ways. You know, I'm very proud of my Chinese heritage, but because of my family's connection to the West, I came to recognize the way I was raised was half Western, half Chinese, and which have to pick my family, thank God, left it to me rather than forced it upon me. So to some extent, I never quite fit in in the Chinese culture, especially in the Chinese school culture. Part of my family was also separated for many years because the two countries didn't have any connections back then. So one of my uncles finally went back to China after marrying my aunt. Uh, it was the first time we met in in the 80s. And then he um, he met me and, um, uh, you know, for a Chinese-American who left China for so long, they really didn't function very well. So I was the tour guide assigned by my family to um, help him out, to take him to different places, tour around the Great Wall, the Forbidden City. So we got to know each other. And at the end of the trip, um, he said, I think this girl will be happier in America. I'm going to bring you to America. <laughs> so... That changed my life, and I'm eternally grateful for that. Um, and he's right. I think that for someone like me who enjoys challenges, um, who enjoys doing different things in life, who try to be as thoughtful as I can be, um, there's really no better place on earth than America for, for, for me. And not to mention now that I have four kids, um, and especially, you know, we were talking earlier that you you and I both have a high school graduate, um, witnessing how they have transformed from the little baby that I held on day one when I literally touched love to the young ladies and young men that they have become and the transformation that they have gone through, both physically, academically, and social emotionally. And for them to be filled with so much passion and love and kindness and have so much um, expectations for the world, um, 
I really can't imagine any other country can do it better than than what we have done. And our job for our generation as an educator in this country is to make sure that tradition continues. And and I see talking of kids, I see your kids uh, coming and waking up in the kitchen behind you, and that's quite all right. Um, Thank you. So This is an inter interview coronavirus, COVID-19 style. Yeah, right? <laughs> absolutely. Well, Cecilia Birch, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. Thank you for having me.